This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. I wouldn't say I had a very firm handle on what culture was, but I did know that it had to do with the way we think, our assumptions, the stories that we tell ourselves and how we form meaning. I would say that that was lurking in the back. The thus so's, the assumptions that we make about what is true and what isn't. And so all of those things were things that I started to realize as I saw the assumptions that it formed our American society, the assumptions about the supposed inferiority of Africans that was justified slavery. When I thought about the supposed inferiority of natives that justified taking land, like all of these stories that I was like, oh, these aren't just things that affected the past, but they're still impact the present and even impact how I see myself. This is Where You From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Welcome to Where You're From. Now, if you've listened to an episode or two, or maybe even more of this show before, I know what you might be thinking. Uh, that's not Rasul talking right now. And of course, you'd be right, because my name is Daniel Ryan Day, uh, and I'm actually one of the producers for Where You're From. And today, we are interviewing our host, Rasul Berry. And since it felt a bit weird for him to open up his own show with, hey, this is Rasul, and today we're talking about me, I thought I might jump in and get things going for us today. Especially since this was my idea. I'm just glad Rasul was willing to do this. I'm especially glad because over the past few years of getting to know Rasul, I really have come to respect him a lot. He's helped me think through some of the blind spots in my own life. And honestly, through our many interviews for Where You're From, I've been blown away by how much I've learned and grown. And I wish... Uh, all of you could hear some of the intense conversations that we've had off air, sometimes driving between different locations and talking about these things. But let me just tell you this, Rasul really is the real deal. He has the right heart for this work. And as we will discover together in today's show, he really is a bridge builder that has helped many people, including myself, from many different backgrounds, talk about these tough issues. So since this episode is all about getting to know Rasul, let's just jump in. You're listening to Where You're From. Well, this is a unique opportunity that I get to interview you, Rasul, so that we can find out where you're from. Yes. Are you actually ready for this? I I don't know. (laughs) It feels kind of weird not to have prepared a whole lot ahead of time because I know my own story, but let's do it. So, Rasul, where are you from? <laughs> I'm from Philly, like to say, in northwest Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground is where I did spend most of my days. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so my parents had me. My mom was 20 mm-hmm. and I was the younger of two boys. And my parents broke up when I was two and he ended up being murdered when I was six. And so one of the earliest memories I have is being at his funeral. You know, it was somewhat strange because I didn't 
know him that well because we didn't spend significant time together. Yeah. Have one memory before his passing of him and I spending time together. I know it was more than that, but that's just what I remember. But it still was this somber reality that I had lost something important, lost someone that was important and, and a father that I desperately wanted to know and be shaped by. And so because of that event, my mom struggled to try to get us into good schools. The neighborhood that we were in, if you were to rewind a few decades earlier, was a very kind of thriving old neighborhood in the city. In fact, the oldest statement against slavery that is in the Western Hemisphere was written by a Germantown group of Quakers that was about a mile from where my grandma bought a home. Oh, wow. And yet, because she did buy that home, a week later, she was the first black person to be in the neighborhood. A bunch of for sale signs went up and on the <laughs> block. By the time I got there, a lot of the financial base, a lot of the businesses that had made the neighborhood very thriving had left. You know, So there was just this erosion and this real sense of decline that I saw and experienced. So my mom, in light of that, enrolled us in this very unique boarding school in North Philly that was originally for poor white male orphans. Hmm. And so uh, this was in 1848, I think the school school opens up. And because of civil rights activists, a local man named Cecil B. Moore, Martin Luther King actually came to the school to call for its desegregation. It was finally desegregated. And so I ended up going and enrolling as a fourth grader in a boarding school in North Philly. And that kind of starts another chapter of where I was from. I mean, you can imagine for any mother, it's a a very big deal to put their kids in boarding school, Mm -hmm. even if it's still in the same city. You're not seeing them every day. Yeah. But I always knew that she did it for our own good and to kind of find us a way to have a better education. I felt like a few years later, by the time I was in high school, the local high school that I would have been zoned for actually shut down. (laughs) And it's still closed to this day because it was just so poorly funded. You know, I kind of look at that and realize mom knew what, you know, what was best even before I even knew. At the time, you know, it was so such a weird thing. Wait, we're going to be sleeping someplace else? Yeah. <laughs> but it was a good move. Yeah. So your mom makes this huge decision after mm-hmm. your dad passes away in fourth grade for you of putting you in boarding school. Uh, what was boarding school like for you? Just talk through that experience. Yeah. So it was interesting because you have to take a test to get into the school. And so there was a bit of feeling good about yourself when you got past that. And it was like, okay, you're good enough to get in. But it's this very imposing place. There's a like a 10 foot wall (laughs) completely around the school. It's about 45 acre campus with neoclassical buildings that look like the bank or that looked like the (laughs) Parthenon, all marble columns that just dot the campus. So if you could imagine going to like DC to like where all the museums are, but those are your actual dorms in school buildings. (laughs) That's what it was like. And so I think it was this mixture of, wow, what is this place? You know, it was uniforms, Mm -hmm. burgundy blazers, gray pants. And I remember that first night. And that first night, because you're in a big dorm uh, room when I was in fourth grade, it was about 25 beds, 30 beds. Mm, yeah. And I could hear some people like sniffing and crying because they were sad that, you know, they had to leave their families. And I remember thinking to myself, 
okay, this is it. I'm here. Hmm. I don't know. For me, it just, I was able to adapt pretty quickly and it was a mixed bag. On a one end, I loved the stability of the place of, mm-hmm. you know, everything just being kind of lined up, whether it was like when meal times were, the rhythm of class, everything was just very structured. And there were aspects of that that I appreciated because we had moved around a lot growing up because my mom was, you know, the single mom who was just struggling to, you know, raise these two kids. And so we would sometimes stay with my aunt, sometimes stay with my grandparents. And so to be in a stable environment was comforting. Mm -hmm. But on the other end, the thing that made it challenging was up until this point, I had always been in, I think, in environments where it was pretty easy for me to connect with other kids. Even though fourth grade sounds early to go to boarding school in most people's cases, at this school, I was actually what they called a newbie. I was late to the (laughs) party. Most of my classmates had been there since first grade and had three years of a head start of connecting. And so very early, I was an outsider. And that really shaped a lot of who I became as a person because nothing came easy. I wasn't athletic. I wasn't cool. I was not smooth at that point. (laughs) (laughs) There was nothing about me that drew people to me. And so Mm -hmm. I found myself on the outside looking in and that was tough, but it was also something that over time kind of caused me to be more observant about people and curious about people because I was kind of observing a lot. Was it a pretty diverse student body or? Yeah. So ironically, even though the school started as like a racially segregated school for white boys Mm -hmm. in particular, and by this point it was desegregated and Mm co-ed. And so my brother ironically was in the last class of all boys. And then several years later, you know, it's co-ed as well as diverse. So it was, I would say, predominantly like maybe 80% black at that point and 15% white and then a diverse amount of the rest. So yeah, it was very different than what it had been 20 years before. Yeah. You mentioned that your brother was there as well. Mm -hmm. Did he start the same year that you did? He started the same year. He started in seventh grade and Mm -hmm. I was in fourth grade. And that also created a difference in our relationship because literally his part of the campus was middle school and mine was what they call junior school or elementary school. And so (laughs) I didn't see him as much anymore because we were in two different campuses from that point on. So then when I got to middle school, he was in high school. And then when I finally got to high school, he was about to graduate. So were you all pretty close before school? I would say yes, in a way that two brothers living together have to be, right? Uh It's almost like no choice, but we're also very different. And so that had its own dynamics. Being at the school, one of the unfortunate side effects of that is I think it caused us to drift apart Mm -hmm. some. Like, he's an introvert. I'm an extreme extrovert. He's kind of has a dry sarcasm. That's more about his way. I'm more positive and optimistic and whatnot, although sarcasm has come later. But, um, (laughs) But yeah, so we were different in a lot of ways. And so I think being apart for that long did create some unique distance in our relationship. Yeah. A couple minutes ago, you mentioned just the the stability that came with going to the school and the rhythm and how life-giving that 
was to you. It reminded me of in our episode of Where You're From with native theologian Mark Charles. He mentions stories of his childhood where they would play like, how long can we keep the lights off and stuff like that. And you responded in that episode with, oh, that sounds like where I came from. So how much of the economic situation, what, what was that like for you growing up? And then how did school offer that difference? Right. I didn't know that we would have been considered low economic class, like poverty line Mm -hmm. at the time, because my grandma would always say like, one thing about us, we're going to eat well. (laughs) Right. And so, you know, we always had this incredibly, like I said, from like a caterer type cuisine that was prepared for us. That was just incredible food. She could bake bread with the best of them, make cheesecakes and all Mm. these things. And we always had a roof over our head, but I didn't realize because, you know, mom is not telling me at, at five, hey, the reason why we're moving with my aunt and living there for a year is because, you know, things aren't going as well for us as they could. Like, so I didn't know I was shielded from the reality of how much we were kind of just getting by. Mm-hmm. And until later, actually being at the school kind of helped because one of the potential ways to be part of the cool kids uh-huh. was to have cool toys that everybody wanted, especially a gaming system. Like if back then <laughs> you had like Nintendo or, or if you had like the, the different types of toys that everybody wanted to play with, then you could kind of get on the in crowd. And I didn't have access to any of that. <laughs> and it was just like, hey, OK, this is not my <laughs> way in. So, yeah, on the one end, I could definitely resonate with that struggle of like we don't have enough. For example, this is a good example. The thought of getting Jordans never entered my mind. (laughs) That wasn't even something I thought to ask my mom because it was just like, this Mm -hmm. is just, you know, whatever we can do to just kind of have stuff on your feet. So it was normal to me. And yet at the same time, I look in hindsight and I go, oh, yeah, I know that struggle really mean. So it meant me wearing hand-me-down clothes for my brother and not really being able to shop for myself in the way that other kids could for their own self Yeah, and, and things like that. So kind of more of a survival mentality. Yeah. So in boarding school, did you find academically that it was tough? Was it easy for you? Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the academic side of things? Yeah. You know, it was a definitely an advanced school. And it was one of those things, though, that because of the unique circumstances that you could kind of make it what you wanted. And I was one that began to fell in love with reading and academic questions and pursuits. So I was like a good student Mm -hmm. until my freshman year in high school, with some exceptions, math had tended to be more of a struggle. So especially when they started (laughs) introducing letters to math Mm -hmm. and like, I'm like, wait a minute, (laughs) this is confusing, this algebra thing. But in ninth grade, things really, I would say changed. I read a book that now I would say was probably the second most influential book in my Mm -hmm. life, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. And it literally was like a light bulb went off in my head. And and I actually, it was the only black teacher that I had in almost the entire time there in the classroom. And Mm -hmm. she introduced us to African-American literature. And I remember reading, and one of the things in that book that just blew me away was that when uh, Malcolm X was in prison, he read and rewrote the entire dictionary. (laughs) And prior to that point, he had been disinterested in academics. And then to see how eloquent he spoke and to see how much he knew in prison, 
And I was like, this mm-hmm. dude got this type of information in prison. I'm in school. I have to like make the most yeah. of this and maybe I can have the type of impact on people that he had. And so from that point on, I took my academics more seriously and ended up becoming like second in my class when we graduated. Yeah. And then not to mention too, we haven't talked about the fact that you have a very unique name. It's always fun when we do interviews to hear how people are going to pronounce it. (laughs) Russell. Yes. Rasul with like a really big emphasis on the end. (laughs) So first of all, for anybody that's listening, pronounce it for us but then talk a little bit about kind of the meaning of that name sure uh, where it comes from in your family story and then how that kind of collides with this part of your story of kind of awakening to not just Malcolm X but realizing that African-American literature Mm -hmm. exists and that there's this culture that comes with it yeah so Rasul is how you say my name Rasul not Russell (laughs) not Razul with yep. a Z, but Rasul. It's like Ra with cool at the end. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it is Arabic. It means prophet or messenger. One thing that's a little fun fact is that every Muslim in the world has said my name because it's part of the creed to be a Muslim. You know, Rasul Allah is the prophet of God. And that very much reflected the fact that my parents in the 70s, when I came around, had joined the nation of Islam. And I think for them, it was more of like this idea of social uplift because they were talking about issues in the black community and ways to empower people. So I think it mattered more to them for that. But nevertheless, I didn't know quite why some people call my mom by a different name (laughs) than the name that I knew, but she had like an Arabic name. But I remember going to mosque early on and one thing that was for sure that was a key component is we could not eat pork. And so I remember as early as I could read, being instructed to read the ingredients on any kind of baked products to see if it had lard in it. And if it had lard in it, we couldn't eat it. So yeah, that was a key component. My father, I think, was more involved. And so when they split up, she kind of began to slowly drift from it to the point where by the time I was in elementary school, we weren't really observing in any way. But that definitely was in the back of my mind. So when I did read the autobiography of Malcolm X, like it made me come to grips with thinking about this part of my life Mm -hmm. that was very early on and wondering even was this a way to connect with my father who is now gone for years and yeah and what do i make of the conclusions that malcolm is drawing here are there any other particular memories from boarding school days that you look back on now and Mm -hmm. like wow that was really formative yes absolutely there were a couple okay (laughs) the first was A hard one that really kind of formed a sense of kind of who am I and and how to shape myself. So I was in a scenario where I was in seventh grade and I was a huge baseball fan. Mm. My grandfather was the reason why he had taken me to over 100 Phillies games by the time Mm. I was in seventh grade. And uh, the Phillies were so bad back then that they would give away stuff to entice people to come to the games. (laughs) And so as a result, I had all this like random Phillies paraphernalia, Mm -hmm. batting gloves, bat, batting helmets, you know, warm up jerseys. And I wore it all. And I wanted to like emulate my favorite player, Mike Schmidt at the time, greatest (laughs) third baseman of all time, by the way, shout out. So there's this moment where we're playing it against the eighth graders. And it was the classic scenario, bases loaded, you know, two outs, bottom of the ninth, 
and I'm up and we're down by like three mm-hmm. runs and I could kind of win the game for us. And I didn't quite realize that people were annoyed at what they saw as my just overbearingness because I, I would get up <laughs> to the plate and Mike Schmidt had like lower back issues. So he would like stretch out and lean back on his back and I'm doing this <laughs> and I'm like 12. Right. And it's like yeah. people were like just rolling their eyes like whatever. So in any case, first pitch comes strike one pitch comes strike two. So now we're at it. Uh-huh. Pitch comes. I close my eyes, which is a bad, <laughs> bad signal. And I swing as hard as I possibly can. I hear the bat crack. I'm like, yo, this is the dream. <laughs> and I open up my eyes and the ball is on the base. I get tagged out. It's over. Game's over. And they just start laughing at me in mass. And um, and then they start oh, chanting man. a profane version of of Mike Schmidt hmm. that I won't repeat, but you could probably figure it out. And they were calling me that as I left the field and I, I left the field in tears. Like I was oh, broken I and my teammates were also joining in by the way, because yeah. <laughs> it was just oh, this man. moment. And I remember at that point, just feeling a deep sense of rejection, you know, middle school is hard for most of us. It was yeah. definitely that for me, but it was reinforcing that sense that I felt when I first got there yeah. of where do I fit? Is something wrong with me that I can't be accepted. Hmm. And the next time that that came up was my senior year. So this is now senior year, big deal at the campus because it's such a a big, you know, K through 12 experience and that you're there all the time. Seniors are like rock stars. Like literally we come in for like our weekly chapel and everyone rises when we come up and we have blue blazers. Everybody else has the burgundy blazers when I first came. And so it's a really big deal. So maybe because of that, I found myself in a unique situation where two girls like me at the same time. And that was very unusual for me. But like they say, uh, even a broken clock is right twice a day. And one was in the school and one wasn't. So I decide you know, at the encouragement of a friend, but I'll take ownership. I decided to try to be with both at the same time mm-hmm. and learned a valuable lesson. You can't be a player if you don't have game. And so because one had, you know, more of a lower self-esteem and I kind of leveraged that to kind of get what I wanted out of the relationship. And then she confronted me and said, you know, are you cheating on me? And I say, yes. Now all the time, I'm like presenting myself as the antidote to the bad guys that she's been around Mm -hmm. up until that point. And she says to me, you're no better than other guys. In fact, you're worse because you think you're better than them. And that was the moment where it was like God took this, you know, version of myself that I had, which she was absolutely right. I did think I was better than them. I by that point. After the situation happened with the baseball event, I kind of eventually threw myself into academics, threw myself into service. I was going to get people to like me that way by being a good guy. And so I thought I was a good guy. I was voted best role model, senior class president. I kind of achieved senior year this status of like, I made it like I'm finally an ideal version. And then at that moment, this happened. She says that and it all comes crashing down. Yeah, I'm sure. And then what was the interaction like with the next girl? Yeah. So I decided to just confess to the other girl. I was like searching and trying to find a sense of how could I even not just be the lowest piece of scum on the face of the planet? I guess I didn't want to live with the secret anymore. So I just confessed fully expecting to get another, you know, well-deserved tirade about how how bad I was. And she said, I forgive you. (laughs) 
And I was like, what? She's like, I forgive you. And I said, why? I had no frame of reference for it. And she said, well, Jesus has forgiven me for everything that I've done. So I don't think I should hold this against you. Hmm. And let me tell you, it was like relief, confusion, in- intrigue, yeah. all at the same time. Like, I'm like, okay, that's amazing. What do you mean? And how do I get some of that for myself? Mm-hmm. Did you know the name Jesus before that? Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. Or? Yeah. I mean, definitely, you know, knowing about Christmas and I definitely had elements of this was a really important and special person. Mm-hmm. But I was strong on what Christmas was. Easter was kind of it was to me like that day where a lot of church people go to get new clothes. Mm-hmm. I didn't really grasp the rationale behind the facts of a story of, I guess if you would ask me who that guy is on the cross, I'd be like, yeah, that's Jesus. Did he stay there? I I probably would have known facts, but I didn't have an understanding of the story. Mm-hmm. And so when I was like, tell me more, she started inviting me to church and I began to hear the story and I began to hear the story in a way that I was seeing its connection to my story. So going there and hearing the gospel preached at these incredible black Baptist churches that would have this rousing close at the end mm-hmm. where, you know, the folks are hooping and they get into the place where like <laughs> Jesus is on the cross and he died for your sins and he rose again. And it was just this cathartic moment where the very emphasis of guilt and shame and forgiveness, meeting that guilt and shame was very much like a salve to my soul because it's a weird thing to be self-righteous even in a secular sense and all of a sudden realize you need forgiveness and where does Mm -hmm. that look like and where does that come from and so the questions I began to ask were different this was senior year so I ended up graduating in June my roommate in the boarding school ended up inviting me to his church in uh, southwest Philly now this is a neighborhood I'm not familiar with so I end up getting lost trying to get to his church (laughs) and I give up after wandering around for like an hour and I see this church there like as I'm trying to get to the subway and someone outside says yeah you can come on in and I notice and this is still weird that most churches just have like Sunday service at 11 a.m. this particular sign had sermon noon and the sermon was my favorite part and because I walked around for an hour it was now noon and I was like oh I can still (laughs) make the sermon and uh, so I go in and it was a hot summer day I was super sweaty and the first thing I experienced was the air conditioning like I was like (laughs) oh my gosh it's such a relief after wandering the streets of Philly But then we get there and it was this supernatural encounter of me sensing God's presence in a way Mm. that in my, at this point, somewhat agnostic, somewhat academic, intellectual mind was not possible. I didn't think that this was actually a possible experience. And so it kind of freaked me out. And so I tried to rationalize and was like, oh, that must just be the perspiration on my chest and Mm. under my shirt that's causing me to feel this this weight on my chest. So then I go to next week and I didn't have an undershirt on and I still felt it. And I was like, wait a minute, is God like speaking to me? And so I go up to one of the ministers afterwards and I'm just confused. Like, I think God is like, cause then when the altar call would come up, when they would have you stand up and come like, say the doors of the church are open, man, I, it was just, I was like, I wanted to go down there, but I'm like, I can't do that in front of all these people. Like, this is too embarrassing. (laughs) 
And so finally, it was this like crisis I was having because it was like every time I would go like it'd be like raking me through the coals. Like I felt like I was being like drawn like a magnet up to the front. But at the same time, I didn't want to be embarrassed. And so um, I went up to one of the ministers afterwards and was like, I think I'm supposed to join the church or something. And then he asked me, why have you ever prayed to receive Christ as your Savior and Lord? And I was like, huh, what does that mean? (laughs) So I said no. So he prayed with me right there. And then uh, I remember getting baptized in particular, August 20th, Mm -hmm. 1995. And it was such a vivid moment because the way that they did it, and this was like an old time Baptist church where like they would like sing around you dressed in white. They had like a pool in the basement and they're like going down by the water and, you know, all this stuff. And it's just like building, building. And I remember thinking there, like, I'm giving Jesus the keys to my life, like, Hmm. and he's going to drive now. And my family was there and they were supporting me and I go into the water and come back up and it was like, okay, it's on. And then the next week I was a freshman in college. So I go to Minority Scholars Weekend, fall in love with it. And I'm like, this is where I want to go. So we apply, you know, get in. And then they had a African-American Scholars Weekend the July before my freshman year. And then I go and do that. So now again, I am in a environment where I'm at this Ivy League school and I'm, you know, but I'm surrounded by people that look like me. Then there's a pre-freshman program, which was six weeks, all designed to kind of help students who came from non-traditional backgrounds or first year, first generation college students like I was to kind of get acclimated, which was great because, you know, you felt like you owned the campus and you knew where things mm-hmm. were. And the pre-freshman program was more diverse. It was just people from like low economic situations. So there were Eastern European first generation white kids as well as, you know, black and brown. But it was like, you know, this is great. I love this place. And then school year starts. Yeah. And that's when it's like, oh, snap. This is a different environment. And when we come back, Rasul Berry will share how he navigated what we might even call a hostile environment, but how those experiences in college paved the way for him to become a bridge builder who helps many of us navigate complicated and sensitive conversations around topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying where you're from, would you take a moment to write a quick review and give us some stars? Podcast platforms like iTunes and Google promote highly rated shows. So a one-sentence review of what this episode or show means to you and a quick five-star rating will help these important stories reach more people. Thank you for your help and keep listening for more of where you're from. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders, to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. Welcome back to Where You're From. I'm the producer, Daniel Ryan Day, and in just a moment, we will continue getting to know the host of Where You're From, Russell Berry. But before we do, just a quick reminder that the show notes are available in the podcast description. 
The show notes not only contain the notes and quotes from today's episode, they also contain links to our social channels, as well as a link to watch the documentary series Rasul did called In Pursuit of Jesus. This series really is a fantastic series and follows Rasul around the world to places like Singapore, South Africa, Sweden, Israel, and a few other places. He meets people from different cultures and different backgrounds and hears from them about who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And I'll be real with you, this series encouraged me a lot, and I think it will for you too. Not to mention, it's a lot of fun too. So again, you can watch the series for free. Just click on the link in the show notes or copy the link and paste it into your browser. Now before the break, Rasul mentioned starting college at the University of Pennsylvania. There was a lot riding on this for him. His grandparents didn't finish high school or middle school. His mom didn't finish high school. Rasul's older brother started college but found a good job instead of finishing. And so Rasul mentioned to me that no one else in his family up to that point had had the opportunity that he got. So there was a lot riding on this for him and he felt that pressure. But he was also really excited. Rasul was invited to visit the University of Pennsylvania for a Minority Scholars Weekend where he was surrounded with brilliant students from minority backgrounds. As a result, he fell in love with the school. But as he foreshadowed at the break, soon things changed, and he realized his experiences at the Minority Scholars Weekend and the special orientation he experienced were quite different from the day-in and day-out experiences of life at UPenn. So let's pick up the story there. Here's our host, Rasul Berry, sharing his story on Where You're From. And then school year starts. And that's when it's like, oh, snap, this is a different environment. Going from being 80% of the population in my high school to being 5% of the population in my college. But up until that point, I thought I was fine. My best friend in high school was white and my teachers had great relationships with them. So I didn't think that was going to be an issue because, you know, I was like, we all get along in my boarding school, so it's going to be fine. And then that's when I realized... This is not Gerard. This is a different place with a different type of dynamic. It was not the same. And all of a sudden, I was made to feel more different and um, alienated. And I did have a struggle in terms of my cultural identity and what that meant on campus in a way that I never had before. Yeah. What were some of the experiences that happened? Because it sounds like it's much more than just looking around and realizing there's a lot of white people now. Yeah, that wasn't it. What were some of those experiences that happened? Yeah. What that did do culturally, though, I remember looking out the window and being like, oh, folks are in shorts. That must mean it's like 70 degrees. And then going outside and being freezing because I'm like, oh, snap, y'all in shorts and it's 60 degrees. So there were like little things, cultural differences like that. But that wasn't like a big deal. Mm -hmm. The things that started to make me feel like, oh, like some people don't think I belong here was two things. Well, yeah, at least two. The first was the assumption that affirmative action meant, first of all, that people who were not qualified to be at the school were accepted because they were black. Mm -hmm. And in the late 90s, when I was in college, that was a hot, hot topic. That was the kind of culture war issue at the time. And especially for these elite universities like that, where there was a, you know, high demand of people and a lot of people wouldn't get in. 
that was the ex- assumption that a lot of white students had was like you're here because of affirmative action and affirmative action means you're here because you're black like that was the two parts mm-hmm. to it so that was weird because I understood from the experience that I had that affirmative action meant that that recruiter came to my school where he normally wouldn't have come because right. we weren't a traditional feeder school to the university. And so he was just saying, hey, you should come check this out. There was no guarantee or promise of any kind of prorated. And I was like, I was second in my class. I was points away from being a valedictorian. Why would you assume this? That was the one thing that was a shock. But the other part was there would be these op-eds in the student newspaper that would kind of attack. Like I lived in a student uh, dormitory called W.E.B. Du Bois College House. W.E.B. Du Bois is a famous you know, African-American scholar who was the first black professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And so they had all these college houses. One was for international people who were in international studies. And you had a college house for that. There was one for English literature. And, and so they would create these programs in these dorms that was for that. And this one was for African-American culture and literature. And so it fit the theme of what a college house was. It just had this specific emphasis on uh, black culture. And so we would get these op-ed pieces that would refer to those of us who lived there as self-segregating and that this was reverse mm-hmm. racism and, and all of these things. And it was just so weird. But then there was this one moment where my freshman year, I take a class writing about moral issues. That was a freshman seminar class. And then the topic of affirmative action comes up. And it was funny because it was like a graduate student that was the teacher. And so he kind (laughs) of gives this unique premise that he didn't give with anything else. Like we had talked about euthanasia, abortion. We talked about all these different things and have debates. But when it came to affirmative action, he was like, now I know this is a touchy subject. And, you know, we want to be respectful. (laughs) I was the only black person in the class. And so I try to come at it from an intellectual standpoint. Like, hey, You know, I think some people don't agree with it because they don't know what it is. They think it's about quotas. That was one particular type, but that wasn't the majority of it. And so so I just say most people don't know what it is. And then they say, well, what is it? And from that moment, it was like all 18 students turned toward me and it was like a firing squad. And for the next hour and a half, they were just throwing questions at me the whole time. And I remember looking at the professor like, no, no help here, huh? It's just just me. And I walked out of that classroom just mentally exhausted and just like, man, you feel like you're defending your existence. And those were the type of experiences that made it more difficult, not just the optics, which I kind of expected the fact that I was going to be in a minority, but not that I was going to be made to feel like I didn't belong. Yeah. So as part of that, what led you to uh, focus in on Africana studies and begin to kind of understand some of those issues more deeply or better? Or I think initially I took African-American studies classes because I was just interested and never been taught that history before. There was so much I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And so when we started getting exposed to these writers and thinkers like Du Bois, it was just like, man, I want more of this. And then the other part of that was I came in thinking I was going to go into law because I kind of figured I like to debate. You know, we did that all the time at home with mm-hmm. sports. So <laughs> I like to argue. And 
Then I realized that when I took my first pre-law class, I was too idealistic to be a lawyer. <laughs> I took that off the list. And then right. I thought about psychology, but then I took that off the list. And if I was in psychology class, I'd be wondering about the macro effects of society and not just the individual. If I was in sociology class, I'd be thinking about, well, macro doesn't tell the whole story. What about what's going on mm-hmm. inside someone? What about history? It was like I had an interdisciplinary focus that was really centered on the African-American experience. And once I landed on that, it helped me understand culture, which was ultimately going all the way back to fourth grade when I was starting to observe people. Essentially, I was just curious about people and how people worked. Mm -hmm. And then these concepts like culture, like society, like demographics, they all began to give me language to talk about and to be curious about the human experience that I didn't have before. And doing that from my own vantage point of my own experience was so important because it was something that I had been separated from. Yeah. Now you just mentioned that it helped you understand culture. When you use that word culture, first of all, kind of what do you see as encompassing what culture is? But then also, were you talking about understanding black culture? Were you understanding Mm -hmm. the general culture? Or is this a macro micro thing as you were just talking about where it's like universal culture, individual cultures. So unpack what culture meant for you, even just at that point, yeah. and then what were the cultures that were kind of coming to light for you? You know, that's a good question because I, I wouldn't say I had a very firm handle on what culture was, but I did know that it had to do with the way we think, our assumptions, the stories that we tell mm-hmm. ourselves, and how we form meaning. I would say that that was lurking in the back. The thus so's, the assumptions that we make Mm -hmm. about what is true and what isn't. And so all of those things were things that I started to realize as I saw the assumptions that formed American society, assumptions about the supposed inferiority of Africans that which justified slavery. When I thought about the supposed inferiority of natives that justified taking land, like all of these stories that I was like, oh, these aren't just things that affected the past, but they're still impact the present and even impact how I see myself. That was intriguing. And I think a journey that I wanted to continue to go down. And I had a suspicion and I think it came to be true that the more of a framework that I had to understanding my experience and the African-American experience, the more it gave me concepts and language and frameworks to understand other people. And so I ended up my sophomore year being the president of the Black Student League. And so in that experience, I'm in this like cultural slash political student activist role and having to understand the history of the Black student experience at Penn was very vital for me to just even figure out what I was doing. Because all I knew was that I wanted to help students who were being made to feel like they didn't belong, feel like they belong, and to have access to learning their story like everybody else had access to learning their stories. That's what I wanted to know. But what I discovered that it took to get there was to understand the history of why those things weren't in place for us like they were and how race and racism had a part in that story. Mm -hmm. And so that was like one major theme. And then the other theme was trying to understand that from a theological standpoint, because I'm growing in my faith, right? I'm a freshman and I'm like, I'm still wet from the Mm -hmm. baptism. (laughs) And it's like, how does this make sense? And the two worlds seem very different. You know what I mean? Like, and in fact, they feel opposed to each other oftentimes. So I'd be at Bible study and there'd be one group of people like, look, we just need to focus on Jesus. And then I would go to the affirmative action protest 
and people are like, yes, we need to embrace our African roots and heritage and <laughs> reject Christianity as part of a colonial imperialism imparted upon us. And I'm like, wow, I care about what both of these groups are saying, but where do I fit in terms of telling the story in a unified way? Yeah. And just because I've known you for a while, that theme of bridge building becomes a pretty major theme of trying to be between two groups of people yeah, and navigating that becomes a big theme in your life, which we'll pick up on in a minute. Before that, though, I want to hear just one story of something you learned in Africana studies yeah. that was the nerd out geeky moment of you just got so excited because it was something you hadn't thought of before or learned for the first time about yourself or culture or uh, some historical figure or something that just really awakened that love for what you were learning. <laughs> you know, it was funny because my um, senior year, I studied abroad. Mm -hmm. I went to Cameroon. And so going there was a life-changing mm -hmm. experience. I remember getting off the plane and it, it was a bumpy start because even though I was proficient in French by university standards. That didn't mean anything because I didn't understand conversational French at all, let alone with an accent yeah. of an African variety that I hadn't studied in school. And so I get off the plane and I have several bags, big bags. So I'm there for a whole three and a half months and like folks are kind of arguing like the porter and they have like the same uniform on. So I'm thinking they're employed by the airport. So then I'm like, okay, cool, great. Thank you. You're taking my bags for me. And then they <laughs> load up the uh, car and then they like looking in their hand like okay pay us now all I have is some francs from we had a layover in Paris so, and I don't know the what the local currency is or the exchange rates so I like just give them some money they huddle together they argue with each other about what each person gets and then they give me change so I gave them money that I don't understand they give me money back that's even different from the money I gave them I don't even <laughs> understand even more and I'm like the Philly comes out of me and I'm like man they just got me like they hustled me <laughs> and so I get on the bus and I'm kind of like sulking. And the director says, like, well, you know, what's wrong? And I'm like, man, yeah, they just kind of got me. And he said, well, what did you give them? And what did they give you back? And I told him, he's like, no, that was a fair exchange. And in that moment, I realized, ah, you combine miscommunication with fear, with being in a foreign culture, and all of a sudden, you get bad assumptions about what people mean and what they intend. Oh, yeah. So that was one thing. But then we stayed with host families and in most cases didn't speak English at all. And we had kind of like a reception. And when we started doing dances, like they started playing the music and the Africans were fascinated. It was me and another African-American on the trip. Mm -hmm. And they see us dancing, the Africans, and they're like looking at each other like, yo, these black folk know how to dance like we do. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> and we're like dancing with them. And it was just this like moment that I'd never forget. That was like, there's a part of me that's in this story in a way that I've been longing for. And so that was a huge moment. And then when I came back, the big part that kind of began to tie everything together. So my last semester, I had an African-American literature class. And in that class, we had to read The Narrative of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs and then the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. And when I read those, what I was shocked by was how much they referenced their faith in Christ and the scriptures. And in fact, Frederick Douglass had a whole appendix in his autobiography 
that clarify that his criticisms against Christianity in America were not to be taken as a criticism of the Christianity of Christ. And he makes this contrast between slaveholding Christianity and the Christianity of Christ. And I was like, whoa, this is the great emancipator. Like, this is Frederick Douglass that's saying this. And all of a sudden, I discovered that, oh, these two worlds that I'm trying to reconcile of trying to address social concerns and injustice and faith in Christ. Like, this isn't a novel concept of me Mm -hmm. trying to wed these together. Well, very people who formed the foundation of resistance against injustice were thinking in these terms. And so I wrote my paper. The paper was called The Gospel According to Harriet A. Jacobs and Frederick Douglass. (laughs) And that was like the first time there was this big statement of like, I see all of this as related and I'm not going to separate and segment parts of who I am, my academic and my intellectual self from my spiritual and Christian self. And that really is what launched that into a new phase of the journey. Yeah, that's so good. And it just reminds me of how much of the story of the civil rights movement, and then obviously before that with Frederick Douglass and and others, how much the church and following Jesus and civil rights have been connected for so long. So how cool is that? That's when those worlds begin to make sense together for you. What did you do after college? So since I knew I wasn't going to be a lawyer and I wasn't going to be a psychologist, I had no idea (laughs) what I was going to be. Honestly, I had no idea. So then like a week before graduation, I heard there was a job fair. So (laughs) I ended up, you know, putting on a shirt and tie, going out. And there was a representative from the Philadelphia School District. And they were introducing a program called Balance Literacy, where they were hiring people who had bachelor's degrees, even if it wasn't in education. And you could be in the classroom to be a teacher. And so I ended up becoming a intern teacher for a year. I was in the classroom with a certified teacher until she left for maternity leave two months into the year. She was a great teacher. And then I had a long-term substitute, which meant that literally two months into my first job, I'm submitting lesson plans to the principal (laughs) to teach first graders after not having an academic or education background. So that was quite the extreme difference, but it was really a delight. I enjoyed it. And at this point, I had just met this you know sweet young lady from church named Tamika and then I got an opportunity that spring I was invited to start a campus ministry at Howard University uh, the mm-hmm. flagship widely considered the most prestigious historically black college in the country in DC yeah. I wrestled with that decision because that meant leaving my beloved Philadelphia uh-huh. for the first time. But I sense that's what God was calling us to do. So that's where we went. Yeah. You mentioned meeting somebody. Yes. So I mentioned the church that I had just walked and wandered in off the street. Mm-hmm. And because I wasn't familiar with church culture, I didn't know how strange that was. I didn't know anything. Yeah. So I just thought people were like me and they just all decided one day, let me go find Jesus. And so let me come into the church. I didn't know that there were like families and all the Mm -hmm. things that were involved. I would always be like, oh, wow. And your cousin goes here too. That's amazing. (laughs) You guys have a pew that you sat in for (laughs) generations. What is that? Yeah. So I was there, a college student by myself for like a year. And Mm -hmm. I was feeling pretty like, why am I still here? But I'm going to be faithful, and this is where God has me. And so 
after that year, I see this vision, this incredibly just amazing person, you know, uh, heaven, light was shining down and the angelic <laughs> chorus seemed to be singing. And I was like, who is this person? But I was also jealous because people were hugging her and showing her all this like love. And I was like, when I came in here, people weren't treating me like this. I mean, I know she cute, but come on. And then I would later find out that she grew up at the church and had gone, you know, down South for school and had come back. And, and so people were welcoming her back. I was like, who is this person? Her name was Tamika. And so at the time I would position myself in the pew so that when service was over, we would like happen to meet each other in the middle yeah. and try to talk to her. And she was always shutting me down. But her best friend would like kind of mouth to me. She likes you. She likes you. <laughs> and so that kind of gave me a little bit of incentive. And so finally, one day I invited her to a gospel concert and she said yes. And we had this most amazing date. And though we didn't call it that because it was just hanging out at an event together. And that just pretty much mm. kept going for a couple years. And we ended up getting married July 7, 2001. Then we, you know, she moved down to D.C. and I kept doing the campus ministry thing at Howard. Man, how cool. So you mentioned earlier that there was this tension between theology, Christianity, and black culture in some ways, at least in some aspects of it, because they saw it as like imperialistic or yeah. kind of the religion of the oppressor. Yep. So when you go to Howard and start this ministry, did you run up against that or was there an openness to this new ministry called Impact? Yeah, that's a good question. It was really a mixed bag okay. as it was in Philly as well. But like DC, it was a big difference, and especially a place like Howard where it was drawing students from all over the country, especially the South in the Southeast, where there was probably the majority of black students. And so there was a lot of folks who were churched, mm -hmm. but not necessarily following Christ. And so the challenge was different. Primarily, it was no, like for real following Jesus, not like just being raised in church. Culturally or something. Yeah. But the other part of that was you still had a lot of the strands of, I kind of call it just throwing out with the baby with the bathwater kind of mentality of this because people in the name of Christ did harm and did inexplicable evil we can't associate with this Christ that they followed or that they proclaimed. And so it was a lot of kind of challenging folks to see that, no, like you don't have to choose between your ethnic identity and Jesus. You can actually have both because the gospel actually shines light and celebrates our ethnic identity and who we are in Christ. And so that was definitely something I started to dig more into and in seeing how my background in Africana studies and sociology gave me the history and the language to be able to yeah. push back on those claims and ideas that existed. So it was exciting, but it was also definitely a culture shock to go from an Ivy League campus to go to an HBCU campus and to see yeah. the differences of how to flow in each of those spaces. Yeah. So fast forward ahead in the story a little bit. So you become a pastor in New York hmm. and a part of Impact's ministry in New York and then end up joining our daily bread. So maybe just touch in a few spots that kind of lead you to become a pastor and yeah. then led you uh, here to work. Yeah. So after Howard, uh, we moved around a bit, Orlando, Florida, where our headquarters was. And I did ministry all up and down the East Coast, as far south as Virginia Tech, 
how we're all the way up to Princeton and, and a lot of campuses in between. Shortly after that, I was really feeling this leading of, of God was doing something different and particularly wanting to engage artists and music. And so we did a summer mission trip where we were leading a music team and uh, and God made it very clear. Like it, I never felt a calling as clear as that it was like, this is what you should do. So we wrote a proposal to move from Orlando to Indiana to launch this music ministry because there was a crew music ministry that was based there. And they said, hey, if you bring the people, you can have access yeah. to all of our studio, our equipment, our vehicles. And we were like, great. So we go up there and that was where I did a lot of incredibly meaningful ministry for me. It was a very sweet season for my wife and I, because she's a singer in the background. So music had been a huge part of my story. And so now here I am leading a group of musicians and helping them to use their art to reach people with the gospel and helping them to use their art to grow deeper in their faith. And so that was an incredible experience. I end up with one of the bands getting them signed to the cross movement record label which was the band that i saw in college you know that had shaped and formed me so shout out to level 316 and it was just this incredible moment of being able to really reach people around the world with music in that combination of culture and faith and uh and so that when that season came to an end about 2013 i was kind of looking for what was next and God began to put on my heart two things. One was cities. Uh, at this point, there was a lot of conversation that was happening in our yeah, in sure. our world around. This was when, like, after Trayvon Martin was killed, and then Michael Brown and that whole situation, mm-hmm. which Ferguson just erupted. And all of a sudden, yeah. a lot of the insights and perspectives that I had from my African American studies background, which had kind of laid dormant for years were needed again to help make sense of what was being experienced. And I knew, even though that I had that academic background, that in order for me to sharpen that, I needed to be in a city context. And so that was Mm -hmm. something that kind of moved us to New York. The other thing was the realization that the local church had to play a really important role in faith formation because it was just a constant presence and it had been even in all of my like missionary wanderings that was like the one yeah. thing that was consistent so we ended up being a part of this church plant which was a year old called the bridge church in brooklyn and that's where we landed and began to serve back in 2015 and been in brooklyn ever since yeah that's awesome and those talents and skills that you just referenced of needing to be involved in these conversations continue today. Mm -hmm. What is it that has led you to be so open to uh, building bridges between two groups that might be opposed to one another? Because uh, a lot of people experience the same types of tension between groups and decide at some point to lean into one or the other. But it feels like you continue to be invited into spaces where you have to help actually hold the tension, maybe even. As you look back over your story, what are some of the things that you've learned about what that looks like, how to do it well? And then how have you become that person (laughs) to do that over and over again? Yeah, I think I I go back to two parts of the story that we discussed. The first part was 
knowing what it's like to be an outsider and feeling on the outside looking in and wishing that somebody had built a bridge to me and invited me in when I felt like that and that sense of rejection. So I think I'm sensitive to that plight of distance with each other and seeing the value of building together again. Then the second part of that was how I came to faith and realizing that the first response to me of rejection was based on a, a real understandable reaction based on me sinning against someone and being like, yeah, you know, I can understand why she wouldn't want anything to do with me. But that didn't allow me to go anywhere with it. But the yeah. second response of forgiveness and inviting into a better story in a better way opened me up to my life. It opened me up to my faith. It opened me up to like ultimate reality. And so I think there's always that sense of what God did for me. I want to make available for him to do for somebody else. Yeah. And then I think the other part is, you know, that collegiate experience or everything going all the way back to the autobiography of Malcolm X, going to Frederick Douglass, going to Sojourner Truth and Harriet Jacobs and recognizing that there was this rich history that I didn't know fully mm -hmm. that upon knowing helped me to make sense of our current realities. And so yeah. if I can help bridge those gaps and help people fill in those gaps, then maybe somebody will be like I was and be like, oh, now that I see with a clarity about how this is, how the gospel response to injustice is just like it was when Frederick Douglass or Sojourner Truth or Harriet Tubman spoke about it, which is it empowers us to, to change. And it gives us the mm -hmm. grace and the truth. We need them both. Sometimes there's this tendency yeah. to just say, oh, we should just forgive everything and forget. And it's like, well, forgiveness is a huge part, but there's also we need to be speak yeah. truth. But then on top of that, I look at the scriptures and I and particularly I look at the story of Zacchaeus, right? This tax collector mm -hmm. who was literally stealing from people and sinning against people. And Jesus, you know, by inviting himself into Zacchaeus's home and and showing that sense of hospitality and that love that transforms Zacchaeus to the point where he then says if I've defrauded anyone I'll pay them back four times over which was what the law was the framework but he did it out of a space not out of obligation but out of gratitude for what Jesus had done for him and so I kind of feel like that's what we get to do when we make yeah. available the full truth of the gospel That was Rasul Berry describing what it means to be a bridge builder. To first, notice those who are left out and on the margins, and listen to what they have to say. Secondly, to show forgiveness and grace, but then finally to speak truth, to bring injustice into the light and call it for what it is, while inviting both parties toward the possibility of reconciliation. In fact, that's really what this podcast is about. Where You're From is a show for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak, and to truly consider the perspectives of even those with whom we disagree. Now, unfortunately, this episode is the end of season one, but don't worry, we're already at work on season two. So check back early next year when we ask another Christian thought leader, Where You're From, and discover how their life experiences and expertise offer us important perspectives worth thinking about. 
Today's episode was produced by Mary Jo Clark, Jade Gustafson, Ryan Clevenger, and me, Daniel Ryan Day. It was engineered by Gabrielle Boward and Brian Hedinga, and today we want to dedicate this show to our fearless leader, Rick DeHaan, the president and CEO of Our Daily Bread Ministries. Thank you for believing in this show and giving us the chance to create it. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.